Good morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are magnificent and sovereign and grander and greater and more beautiful than we could dare even imagine. And who are we, O Lord, that you have stooped down to speak to us? even now, this morning, in and through Your Word, by Your Spirit. And Father, we admit and confess that outside of Your sovereign grace, we are wicked and sinful. And yet, Lord, in Your grace, You have desired to draw us near to You yet again, another Lord's Day, in which we might know and experience and and be revived newly by your grace toward us. And so we pray for that now, Father. I pray that you would, despite my weakness, and only on account of your glory in and through your Son, Christ, use these words to feed us. And Father, we pray that you would nourish us and nurture us in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've heard a story told by a friend of mine a couple of times, in which he relates his time as a student at Cambridge in in England. One day, I think maybe while on a tour with other tourists of some old castles and old churches, he spotted these, these kind of iron bars shooting out of the old pulpit right there in the middle of the church. He knew what they were, but being the guy that he is, he nonetheless asked the group if anyone else knew what those bars were. And no one knew. So he proceeded to tell them what he knew them to be. And he told them that they were bars usually installed by the congregation as a gift to the pastor, put there at the side of the pulpit, to hold an hourglass to tell the time for how long the preacher would preach. And then he noted that the usual time was actually usually two turns of the hourglass, or about two hours for each sermon. In other words, the congregation expected and wanted the pastor to preach at least two hours. The group gave a kind of communal gasp, and one American lady spoke up and asked with some kind of indignation in her voice, well, what time did that leave for the worship? Never mind the fact that worship in the Bible is described more in terms of hearing and obeying God's word than it ever really is of singing. And never mind the fact that too many of us today see worship like going to Starbucks, a a consumeristic kind of spiritual coffee buzz that we indulge in once a week. Now the pastor said he responded by reminding the group that in those days, many people sitting in that congregation still had fresh, vivid memories of when family members or acquaintances had been burned at the stake for even possessing a Bible written in English. And now that they could have it and read it and and hear from it preached, they wanted at minimum at least two hours of a pastor speaking out of the glories of God's Word. Solid Bible time from God's living Word. Friends, how far we've fallen in this day and age from those better days. How great that day will be, too, when the church as a whole will cry out, More! More! Don't sit down. We want to hear more of God's Word. 
This morning, we're going to be looking at a psalm, which is a prayer for just that very thing. It's the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 119. You can turn there if you'd like. We're going to be looking at large chunks of it this morning. And in fact, it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. So if you just happen to do the fall open in the middle, you'll likely fall on Psalm 119. I've read it a couple times this week out loud, and it's taken me about 15 to to 20 minutes each time. The 20 minutes was when my son would keep coming up to me and asking me what what I was doing. But it's a psalm committed totally to the beauty, the glory, the goodness, the power, the perfection, and the necessity of God's Word, and, and how we as a people are to live in light of God's Word, as people of God's Word. My prayer is that as we look at the psalm, we too as individual Christians and, and as a church as a whole, would grow into men and women who love God's Word, who, who need and desire God's Word, that if we were to be pricked and bleed, we would bleed God's Word. The psalm, as I've mentioned, is quite long. It's 176 verses. It's also organized around the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic. So the writer of this psalm, maybe to help with memorization, wrote it in this acrostic form. The first eight verses all start, if you read it in the Hebrew, they they start with the Hebrew letter Aleph, or A. The next eight verses then all begin with the letter Beth, or, or B. And so on it goes through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. That's part of the reason why it's so long. Are you amazed that people actually did memorize this psalm? For instance, William Wilberforce, the English statesman who was largely responsible for bringing the slave trade to an end in England, was known to quote the whole psalm from memory as he walked around London. It's worth the effort. I've not memorized it. I'd like to. Remember while in seminary, though, I would listen to it on the audio Bible online almost every night. I gave life to my young heart. Listen here to the first eight verses. Psalm 119, verse 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Perhaps the first thing you noticed is that every line is about God's law, God's word. The psalmist uses different words to describe this, but but they're all talking about the same thing. In verse 1, he uses the phrase, the law of the Lord, to describe God's word. In verse 2, he describes the word as God's testimonies. In verse 3, he says they're his ways. In verse 4, they're described as precepts. In verse uh, 5, God's word are his statutes. Verse 6, they're his commandments. Verse 7, they're his righteous rules. And this is the pattern for all 176 verses. Almost every verse contains a direct reference to the word of God. One response you might be having right now is this. Wow, 
That is awfully repetitive and sounds incredibly boring. And if that's what you're tempted to think, might I gently encourage you to consider that you don't rightly know God's word. You're not familiar with it because you're not familiar with God and what he's written. And, and, and you have no idea how absolutely amazing God's word is and the wonders it contains. Maybe you're like that boy C.S. Lewis describes who's, who's never been to the beach and, and all he's ever known of fun is playing in the polluted muck of his own city's sewer and drainage system. But he doesn't know any better, so he thinks that the unsanitary gutter in front of him, this inner city house, is the best thing in the world. So when his grandparents come by and tell him that they want to take him on a trip to the beach to see and play at the ocean in all its beauty, the boy responds in a fit of narrow-mindedness and declares, No, that sounds boring. I want to stay here and play. He has no idea. And friends, if you come to your Bible's every once in a while, once a year, and your immediate thought is, golly, this is boring. You may have no idea. The psalmist can spend 176 verses speaking about the beauty and wonder of God's word because, well, he loves it. He really knows it. In his mind, rather than than this prayer of his being repetitive and redundant, it's more like this magnificent diamond that that's bigger and clearer than anything he's ever seen, and he's turning it over slowly, examining each and every facet as the light of God's Spirit shines with illumination, making his heart and soul fill with awe at the beauty of God's Word. He can't help but just gaze at it. Look at how the psalmist describes his affections for God's Word and and God in verse 20. Verse 20. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You don't hear that coming out of many evangelicals' mouths today. Look down at verse 24. Your testimonies, they're my delight. They're my counselors. I love them, he says. Skip over to verse 72. Verse 72. There the author says that, The law of God is better to him than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. It's everything to him. It's the one treasure he holds most dear. In fact, what becomes apparent as you read through the psalm is actually the very personal nature of each verse. You see, the psalm actually isn't a theological treatise on the doctrine of the word of God, though we do get a lot of good theology from this. Rather, as you read through this, we we overhear the honest words erupting when what God says gets in to a man who loves God's word. We hear someone speaking to the God who speaks, someone who needs the God who speaks, someone who loves the God who speaks. He's not thinking here about the topic of God's revelation. Here he's getting down to the business of loving what God has spoken. It's not... Just an exhortation to Bible study. Pick up your Bibles and read. It's an outcry of faith in light of this man's life filled with Bible study. I need more. We need to remember as we read this psalm that it's ultimately a prayer of a man who is begging God to help him know his word more, obey God's word more, and live a life in conformity to God's word more. 
We'll see why this is in a second. But before we do, if, if you think that the language of this psalm doesn't quite describe the language of your heart, that the way he loves and desires and holds so dearly the word of God, that, that that's weird to you, strange and alien, might I suggest you actually reading all of Psalm 119 this afternoon right after lunch? The psalm is one big prayer. In other words, the author of the psalm rightly understands that that his love for God's word actually isn't something he kind of naturally has within himself. The psalmist rightly understands he's only come to love and desire after God's word because God, in his sovereign mercy and grace, has brought this man to seek after and desire God's commands. And so he's praying throughout the psalm for more. Lord, you began this in me. Continue it in me. This is a prayer that all of us should be lifting up to God daily. Look back at verse 18. Verse 18. This is, this is a prayer that I think is essential to the Christian life. And it's actually since I've been here at the beginning of the year, something I've been praying for Greenbelt weekly. He prays there in verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You see? The author here knows that the eyes of his heart, all of our hearts, are darkened and blind. And and left to ourselves, we'll never want to seek out God's words. We'll never want to read God's word. And much less will we ever really want to obey God's word. And he's praying that God would do really what only God can do. Make our blind and our deaf hearts to see and hear. Open my eyes, Lord, to see the wonderful things in your word. You see, the foundation to being a man or a woman who loves God and his word, it's actually not ultimately up to you. Left to ourselves alone, we'd all be like the people he describes in verse 53, the wicked who despise and forsake God's law. In verse 70, he describes them as having hearts which cannot feel. They're like fat. There's no sensitivity to the things of God. Physically, yes, they're alive and walking, but spiritually, they're deader than dead. They're the walking dead. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, describes the natural person, the, the unbeliever, as someone who is unable to accept the things of the Spirit of God. Unbelievers cannot accept or believe or make sense of the Spirit-inspired Word of God because, as Paul says, they're foolishness to him. And it takes the Spirit of God to instill new life, new understanding, and new desires. And here's where I think it gets really wild. If it's true that unbelievers have this ingrained reaction of disgust and and rejection of God's word into their DNA, what then makes them ever come to trust in, believe in, love, and desire God's word? They naturally hate it, So what will bring them to love it? The answer? God's word. Look at verses 49 and 50. 49 and 50. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise or your word gives me life. You see that? In verse 49, the psalmist admits that it was God who brought him to trust in God's word. And then moreover, in verse 50, it was by the word that the psalmist 
was given spiritual life to ever have any hope or faith in the first place. This is exactly what we saw a month or so ago when we looked at Psalm 19, where verse 7 says, The law of the Lord, or the, the, the word of the Lord is perfect, because it's the word which converts the soul. This is probably where Paul gets his understanding in Romans 10, when he writes that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So how does a spiritually dead sinner who hates God and hates God's word come to love God's word and love God? By the power of God, through the word of God. Incidentally, this is why the New Testament apostles made the reading and preaching of God's word the central component to all church life. Because it's there in the word of God where real life actually resides. Look at what Psalm 119 verses 37 through 40 say. Verses 37 through 40. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Friends, that's a theme that runs throughout this whole psalm, and frankly, it runs throughout the whole Bible. That true life comes from hearing and being affected by God's living word. When God speaks, not only does the sun come into existence and all the stars and the heavens and the earth instantly, but when God speaks, new life is created. Men and women are born again, and and people who once hated God hear the gospel and and they become Christians. Saul is going to murder Christians. He hears the word of God, and now he's converting people into Christians. They hear the gospel, and everything changes. They read their Bibles, and their lives are, are turned upside down, or probably right side up. This is why Hebrews reminds us that God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to affect a change in us that nothing else can. If you're a Christian here this morning, let me ask you, do you see and know God's word like this? I mean, are you really reading it daily and letting it transform and create life within you? And just as importantly, are you sharing the truths of God's word with your neighbors and co-workers and relatives and friends? Because again, if it is God's word, which is the means by which God brings spiritual life out of spiritual death, then we ought to be talking about it a lot with everyone. This is what the psalmist prays about in verse 79. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. He's praying that God draw people to him so that he can declare to them God's word. He he wants to evangelize to them out of God's word. It's not just for you privately. It's for everyone. Because really, when you begin to see how beautiful and wondrous the truths contained in God's word is, you can't help but talk about it. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I wonder what you're thinking. I pray you're at least thinking, I ought to at least read the Bible. If you've never read the Bible before, yes, I highly encourage you to do that. Everyone should open the Bible and read it. When I suggest this to my friends who haven't read the Bible, many times they ask me, okay, but where do I start? The answer is easy enough, right at the beginning. 
The Bible is a collection of over 66 books written by many authors over a long period of time. But it's actually all put together perfectly to be read like one continuous story. His story. It's the history of God's salvation plan to unite all things together. Things in heaven and things on earth. And to unite to himself a special people saved out of sin and made righteous to the glory and praise of God forever and ever. And you know who the main character is? The the protagonist of this real life story? It's Jesus Christ. The Old Testament foreshadows and anticipates his coming. The New Testament, the Gospels, like a kind of gonzo journalism, chronicle Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And then the rest of the New Testament follows the ministry of Jesus through his spirit working in his church. Read it. Digest it. Get to know that perfect story. We call it the gospel, which just means good news. And here's why Psalm 119 is actually so crucial to this story. Because it's reminding us that without the word of God, we would never know of God's saving work. God is a spirit, and he requires us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let me ask you, how do you know what a spirit wants? Answer, only when the spirit decides to reveal himself. You know me by looking at me and observing me. I can't observe a spirit, so the spirit must speak to me. And God, who is spirit, has done so perfectly through his inscripturated, inspired word. Psalm 119 is telling us there's a God. And guess what? This God has spoken. And you know what? His words have been written down for us so we can know his words and so that we can know him. Okay, but isn't the Bible kind of like just a translation of a translation of a translation? Like, there's no way we can really know what was originally said because that's been lost to history, right? Kind of like the game of telephone. The longer the chain of people transmitting the message, the more the message gets distorted and and ultimately messed up. We've got a messed up Bible, right? Well, not exactly. Just for the sake of textual science, listen to these numbers quickly. There are, honestly, ten existing manuscripts of the book Gallic Wars written by Julius Caesar about 50 years before the time of Christ. There are 20 manuscripts of Livy's Roman history, which was written roughly about the time of Christ himself. And there are only eight manuscripts of the history of Thucydides, who lived about 500 years before Christ. No scholar who studies ancient texts doubts that we have reliable manuscripts concerning these books. That doesn't even add up to a 50. Now, compare those numbers with the manuscripts and partial manuscripts we have for just the New Testament. We have nearly 6,000 manuscripts and counting almost every year. These are all handwritten copies of the New Testament or parts of the New Testament preserved in libraries around the world and all now electronically cataloged. No other book comes close to the kind of wealth of diverse preservation that the Bible has. In other words, equating the Bibles we're reading today to a bad game of telephone just doesn't hold up to the evidence. Not even close. And here's the wild thing. Psalm 119 already knew that. Look at Psalm 119, verse 89. Verse 89. 
forever, O Lord. Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Firmly fixed in the heavens. The psalmist is not worried here that God's word will ever expire. It won't be lost. It won't be changed. And here's probably the important one for us 21st century Americans. It'll never be updated or need to be updated. It'll never need to be made cool. And we don't have to kind of contemporize it for others. You know why? Because it's firmly fixed in the heavens. Look down at verse 52. Verse 52. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort. In other words, these words find their source in God who is old. He's eternal and unchanging, and therefore his words are eternal and unchanging. Skip over to verse 152, where he says that God's word has been founded forever. And then a couple verses later in verse 160, he says again that every one of your righteous rules endures forever. One of the hymns we sang earlier said that I change, but he changes not. It's true. The words that pour out of my mouth change daily. I say things that I've got to go back and repent for all the time. That's never the case with our unchanging and perfectly eternal God. And what good news that is that we have in the Bible. It's unchanging, perfect truth, which is applicable to every culture at any time and is never in danger of being outdated ever. Do you know what? The psalmist actually isn't just concerned with the unchanging nature of God's word. The Bible isn't for him just this piece of document to study. It's actually something more than that. It has bearing on everyone who reads it and hears it. Because throughout the psalm, we see that God's word is true. He says it contains perfect truth. Look at verse 142. Verse 142, where we see that God's word is righteous forever, and your law is true. I'll skip over to verse 151. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. And not only are they true, but, but it's also the case that God's laws and words are good and righteous. Skip back to verse 68. He says, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. And the result of that, back in verse 66, is he says then, teach me good judgment and knowledge because I believe in your commandments. Perhaps some of the most striking passages are found right there in the beginning that we read earlier in verses 1 through 3. Blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Do you see the logic of this? Since God's word is unchanging and good and righteous and altogether true, it's not enough that we just read it. No, the psalmist says here, blessed is the man who walks according to it. In other words, because it is God's word, the right response is submission to it and obedience to it. Remember what James says in James chapter 3, that even the devils know God and fear God? They know God's word. Oh, Satan can quote you God's word better than we know it. He doesn't submit to it. Blessed is that man who doesn't just read it, but submits to it. And the person who does that, he is blessed. He's, he's happy. He begins to find that deep and eternally lasting joy that we call peace 
or which the Hebrew Bible calls shalom, because God's perfect word guides our lives. And so the Christian man, the Christian woman, the Christian teenager begins to give his life to knowing God's word. I mean, really knowing it so that he could live by it. Look at verses 9 through 18. Verses 9 through 18. If you're a young man, even if you're an old man or an old anybody, this is a good verse to memorize. But it is for young men. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth and the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I wonder, are you storing up God's word in your heart? I mean, are you committed to really memorizing it? Long portions of it? Crucial passages of scripture that have bearing on your walk in life? Are you giving into sin all too easily these days? Go to the Bible and guard your life with God's word. Meditate on his precepts and fix your eyes on all his ways. Young men in the congregation, it's true. You know this. Our world today has made sinful distractions a multi-billion dollar professional business. You cannot coast through life in this day and age without being bombarded. I mean, literally attacked from all sides by someone trying to get you to fix your eyes on what they want to show you. And I'm telling you, the psalm is telling us, the only way we can fight that well is by first fixing our eyes and meditating deeply on Scripture. This is why Paul commands us to fight the fight of faith by taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Because ultimately, as we do that, we can begin to say, as the psalmist says in verses 33 through 40, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I might keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. And yet we'd miss the point of this psalm, wouldn't we? If we neglected to look at the emotional underbelly throughout this psalm. Did it shock you at When I read in the beginning, after he declares his delight in obeying God's word, he then cries out in verse 8, O Lord, do not utterly forsake me. And as you read throughout the rest of this long psalm, you'd pick up on this prominent thread of, of actually a prolonged agony. That the psalm is a prayer for God to help him obey. And this is absolutely important. Because up to this point, we've seen how wonderful Perfect, righteous, powerful, true, eternal and unchanging, life-giving and life-preserving, the Word of God really is. But up to this point, we haven't really seen how wonderful, perfect, righteous, powerful, eternal and life-giving the Son of God, Jesus Christ, really is. I mean, this sermon that I've been preaching could actually fit in well in any Jewish synagogue around the world. Any legalist or moralist would love 
to preach what we've just been talking about. But nonetheless, this psalm is actually a distinctly Christian psalm. I think all the psalms are really distinctly Christian psalms. Jesus tells us in Luke 24 that all the psalms are ultimately about him. But we haven't seen the name of Jesus show up anywhere in this psalm. The psalm doesn't necessarily speak of a coming Messiah. So how is this psalm really about Jesus Christ? I want to close by looking at two ways. The first is how the psalm begins and ends. We've read the beginning. I'll read it again. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who walk in his ways. But what's striking is the way that the psalm ends. Flip to the end and look at verses 174 through 176. 174 through 176. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Friends, we can't read through this psalm and come to the conclusion that it's teaching a salvation through works alone. It isn't. Because it's clear, even on the very last note of this prayer, the psalmist is a sinner in need of a Savior. A man who, like all sinners, is prone to water and even confesses here that he has gone astray and cries out for God to seek and to save him. Here's a man who knows that God's word ultimately points him away from himself. He longs to live righteously before God and to obey all God's laws in perfect righteousness. But alas, he he can't. He is, at the end of the day, a lost sheep. And the only thing a lost sheep needs is not more rules, but instead a perfect shepherd. The psalmist is looking. Even after he sought to obey joyfully all of God's laws, he's looking... For that shepherd, Jesus, the Messiah. The second way this psalm is ultimately about Jesus is in the way it shows us the true blessed man. Because ultimately it was Jesus and Jesus alone who, whose walk was blameless before the Father. It was Jesus who from his earliest days stored up his Father's word in his heart, delighted to meditate on God's good truth in all the days of his life. And here's the irony. The irony is that though the psalmist continually prayed that God would not forsake him as he sought to obey God's laws and words, Jesus actually obeyed God's laws in order to be forsaken, forsaken on our behalf. Jesus lived a blameless life in honor to God for the purpose of being forsaken by God on the cross in his death. So then in his death, his righteous shed blood could actually atone for and cleanse away all our sins, all our imperfect obedience, all our deep-seated and hidden sins. Jesus unfairly got what we deserved so that we could unfairly get what only Jesus deserved, a relationship with a holy and good God. What I think becomes most profound is that the New Testament actually describes Jesus as God's perfect and unchanging eternal word. The Gospel of John actually begins with the, the, the declaration that, quote, in the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him, this Word was life, and the life was the light of men, and, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth coming through Jesus Christ. In other words, the Word of God, who is the Son of God, the perfect Word which God has spoken and which we are all bound to obey, actually became a man. And in grace and truth, died for us as our Savior. So that everyone who believes in Him, every lost sheep who's now found in Him and under His care, is now seen as forever blessed. We shall never utterly be forsaken. And guess what? Because of this profound love that's been shown to us, a love which we can only read about in His Word, we actually begin to love God's Word more and more and obey it more and more. All to the praise of the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh and died as our perfectly forsaken shepherd. We began by thinking of that story of how older Christians longed to hear God's word more. You know what? There was a time before that, before they had their Bibles, where they knew the rules and laws. They knew the commandments to obey. But here's what's changed. When they got the Bible in English and they started to read it, they read, yes, the rules, but then they read about Christ. And that blew them away. And they wanted to hear from it more and more because it was the word that showed them Christ. My prayer is that as we grow to love God's word, ultimately we would grow to love Christ more and more. Let's pray about that.